Since 1993, EcoStore's mission has been to make the world a safer place, one person and one home at a time. They make it easy to choose safer, effective products to care for your family's home and health. Made with respect for the environment. Hi, it's Nathan with you on the Dumbo Feather podcast. We've got episode two of our Good Society series, where we're unpacking the current systems we live, work and play within, and ask how they can be better for people and planet. What does it mean for us to thrive within our planetary bounds? What structures are getting in the way of that? Throughout this series, we look at who we want to be as societies and how we can use our heads, hearts and hands to get there. In this episode, Barry sits down with Professor Dan Ariely, one of the world's leading thinkers in behavioural economics. Dan's a founding member of the Centre for Advanced Hindsight, which does all kinds of fascinating empirical research into human behaviour, particularly when it comes to money, health and the planet, and uses it to tackle complex socioeconomic problems. Dan is particularly interested in irrationality and how it presents in so much of the everyday decisions that we make. He believes that with the right structures and systems in place, we can eliminate some of the opportunity to do things that we know aren't good for us or the world. Dan is a professor of psychology and behavioural economics at Duke University and is one of the faculty members on the Small Giants Academy, Mastery of Business and Empathy. Remarkably, today, it's a big day. Queen Elizabeth died this morning. She died. I didn't realise she died. She died. Really the end of an era with her death. Definitely for Australians, we're in the Commonwealth. There's a cultural tone that she was a part of, that she held, Mm -hmm. and this is very much the end of that 100 years and we're moving into the next 100 years. So what are you sitting with? Are you mostly sitting with your personal fear? What are the observations that are useful to you in this moment? I don't have personal fear. It's more uh, existential angst and worried about where we're going. Let's leave the misbelievers for a second and go back to the question about how we show that we're doing the right thing. The standard way of thinking about behavioral economics is to think about tweaks, little things. Here are people who don't recycle. Let's move the recycling bin slightly closer. There's actually a beautiful research showing that if you have cups, some are ones that you need to wash and more environmental and ones that are disposable, and you put the one that you need to wash first, people pick it up, you move the disposable, people pick that up. So, you know, we have a ton of research on tweaking things to make things better. And if you allowed me, for example, to change your kitchen, I could get you to eat differently. Move the fruits and vegetables to eye level and move the unhealthy stuff to the vegetable drawer and change your shopping list. There's all kinds of things. If you put big plate in the middle for family-style sharing, people eat more. You put cookies on the counter, people eat more cookies. You know, not very surprising, but there's lots of little things like that. And most of behavioral economics is about that. What are the little things that we're doing that are not really serving us? Oh, my God. You're just making me think of our mobile phones. We're so screwed. Oh, my God. Mobile phone, by the way, notifications are on by default. Yeah. I take all of mine off. It doesn't vibrate. It doesn't ping. Yes, but I've got it on silent often because I need to concentrate. But I check it a lot. I visually check it a lot to see what I'm missing. So this is an example of something that you would say, you know, what are we good defaults? So a lot of behavioral economics Mm -hmm. about it. We say, why don't we deal better with money? 
let's change the tools we have for money to make them better. Let's make automatic deposits. Why don't we engineer kitchens, portion control, things like that? And that's what behavioral economics is known for. But it's slightly underserving the big purpose of social science. And it's not really dealing with the question, how we show that we're even on the right trajectory? Because if you tweak things, you're still assuming that... Generally gone in a healthy direction, yeah. And what I try to do a lot is I basically ask the question, what if people don't know how to change depending on the context? So I'll give you an example. I was recently asked by a company that does payroll to think about how to get people to sign up for automatic payroll. Simple question, little tweaks. And then I said, but how do we know that people set up payroll correctly? They are serving lots of small businesses. I say, why would we think that a small business owner know how much to pay people? Now, how much to pay people is a very complex question. It's about revenues and profit and sharing and feeling of equity, and it's about motivation. How do you do it? I said, you're a company that you serve hundreds of thousands of small businesses. You can study that, and you could tell people how much to pay. Yeah. Maybe people are underpaying. Yeah. I suspect that most are underpaying. But I said, you're assuming that people know what they're doing, and we just need to make it slightly easier. We assume that people know what exercise is good for them. We assume that people know how to raise their kids. What I find incredibly interesting is to ask this question. What if people don't know? And the moment you ask this question, like how would people know how to spend their money in a way that would maximize their well-being? How could people know what's the best way to eat and raise their kids and to create long-term relationship and to die one day peacefully? And the list goes on and on and on. And there is so much, and I think that this is the place where social science could really shine, is to basically start answering these questions. Let's look at all the things we don't know how to do well, and let's come up with some principles about how to do it better. Yeah, I love it. So have you done that? Like, have you? (laughs) I even said this morning I was at Pilates before here, and I said, look, I've got to go early, I've got to get prepared and to pretend to know what I'm doing. Like, that's how you feel as an adult, generally. You're just pretending to know what you're doing. There are guardrails based on your cultural container, on your nurturance. We know what the guardrails are for how we form our decision-making. I keep thinking about it all the time, and I don't know what I don't know, which is why I'm talking to you. How do we also determine what is healthy and whole as opposed to what is trauma and brokenness? Because I think those frameworks for which we make decisions, we need to test right upstream to say, are these healthy and whole outcomes? Do you have any insight into how we do that? The only good answer for this is that we need to study things holistically and not in a specific way. Let's take an example. If you tested the effectiveness of the donut in the short term, it would look like it's a really wonderful thing. If you tested an hour after donut consumption, you would come to the conclusion that we should just have more donuts. You have to measure long-term effects to understand what it is. So what happens is that a lot of time, our measurements are too narrow, Mm. and then we don't get the results. So where are cases where people just don't know? And they're everywhere. For example, in financial decision-making, we show in many ways that people don't know what to buy to make themselves happy. 
We show that people try to keep up with the Joneses. That doesn't make them happy. It makes them happy short term, but doesn't work long term. We show that people buy too much stuff and not enough experiences. We show that people don't have enough cushion, emergency savings, and when things go bad, they go really bad. But the topic that I'm mostly working on now is I've been thinking about the last chapter in people's lives. Mm. Lots of people with injuries call me. Somebody gets injured. When they get injured, it's very clear to them what they've lost. It's not clear to them how they find happiness in life afterward. <laughs> and some of them call me up and, and want to talk about, you know, how do you find meaning in life after a tough injury? And one of the guys who called me, he sent me a quick email. I called him back. And it was about the year anniversary after his injury. And it was at the point of time where he realized he was not going to get better. Mm. And he was a PhD student in applied math, jumped to the ocean, broke his neck, <gasps> was paralyzed from the neck down. And we started talking about, you know, how does he find happiness? And we talked about two approaches. The first one was his uncle had a startup that was doing some algorithm for computational vision and he could help them out. So he said he would do that. And then he hated all these books that say, my injury is the best thing that happened to me. There's a class of books like that. He hated them. I hate them. So he said he was going to write a book. And then he asked me, what do I think about committing suicide? Mm. And I said, in general, I'm not against it, but <laughs> just came up with two plans. Let's explore those. And we kept on exploring them. He couldn't work with the startup. He was too slow for them. Mm. The book, he made some progress and I helped him. But then he did commit suicide. He did? Uh, he did, yeah. Every day he got morphine and he spat a little bit of his morphine into a cup huh. until he had enough. And he wrote in his diary about it. So nobody accuses his parents that they killed him and basically got his caretaker without him knowing to give him the cup with all the morphine and he passed away. And I really started thinking about end of life and mm. how do we do this better? And I looked at the results and the results are really terrible. I think about the gap between where we are and where we could be. The environment, spending our money, relationship and so on. In end of life, the gap is very big. It's all our fault, and I can very easily see how we could do it better. In Australia, just by the by, we've just had the right to die pass in most states. So if you're terminally ill and you go through a process, you have the right to die with dignity. and. That's wonderful. It's very, very important. By the way, the results from those things is that it's not just the act, it's the feeling of control. Yeah. In Oregon... I met the guy who prescribes all the medications to people. And he says the moment they have the medications, they're in control. It's a very different story. They live longer. And they don't die horrific deaths. There's also a quality of death. By the way, it's not enough. I mean, the right to die is a very important starting point, but it's not enough because a lot of the things when I talk to palliative care experts about what's a good way to die, almost all of it is non-medical. Yes, you don't want pain. Yes, you want to be comfortable. But it's mostly about having a legacy, feeling loved. And lots of people get it. In the US, in surveys, 80% of the people want to die at home. Just slightly more than 20% get to die at home. Wow. And if you think about dying at home, it's a very different story. Even think about visiting. If you go to visit somebody in hospital for two hours, it might not be the right time. You might not have something to say to them for two hours. If they're at home and you pass by for five minutes every hour for five hours. It's in the flow of life. That's right. Yeah. That's right. 
much better fits, right? Because also, who wants to entertain people for two hours? Like if you're sick and in the bed, you know, somebody comes for two hours and you feel guilty and now you have to entertain them. So I started looking at all the things that we do wrong about this last chapter of life. And it doesn't start with the end of life. It starts with the moment of diagnosis. The moment people get diagnosed with a terminal illness, people on average have slightly more than five years. That's a long time, right? Medical science have made that period much longer. And people have all kinds of dilemmas. Who do you share with? How do you share? People become patients. Most of life, we care about quality of life. We go drinking, we meet friends, we go for a walk. The moment people get a diagnosis, they become mostly patients. Quality of life only comes back at the end with hospice and palliative care. But really, quality of life, we should worry about it all throughout. I think that the last chapter of life has a potential to be people's best chapter. <laughs> and imagine people died and we could bring them back and we could say, what five-year period would you like to repeat? I would like it to be the last part of people's life. I think it's doable. I think it's doable because the end of life focuses people on relationship. They need to take some actions. It's not easy, but I think it's doable to make it the most meaningful and useful chapter. So basically, going back to our initial discussion, I say, what if people don't know how to end their lives? I, mean, I don't mean about suicide. I mean, what if people don't know how to deal with this part? Uh, can I study that? Can I try to understand lessons and then create a better map? A cultural map. Yeah. Yeah. Most of us avoid the conversation. And it's funny with the Queen dying this morning, and we're having this conversation about end of life and what is the purpose of a life? really being able to ask ourselves those questions. And when you were talking about that last chapter, I couldn't help but go up and be like, wow, because you were talking about existential angst before. What if this is the last chapter for humanity? Like, Mm -hmm. how do we do it well? I think those are two very different questions because I think that if you think about the last chapter of humanity, it could be very hard to make it feel uplifting. Yeah. I think one of the things that could make it less terrible and more uplifting is legacy. And legacies, our kids, the things we leave behind, all kinds of things like that. I think it's a necessary part to feel that there's a legacy. If we thought, you know, this is it, the planet is gone, it would be very hard to feel as positive about it. So how are you thinking about the big systems play? You said you were talking about existential angst. In what way is that manifesting for you? So how do we think about the changing systems? Yeah. So... I'm very much into this fake news world right now. So it's very much top of mind. In the US, we counted the results of the election three times. More than 60% of Republicans believe that Trump won the elections. Still. Yeah. Some more extreme ones believe that he's actually the president, that he's the one who's flying on Air Force One and so on. But lots of people watch Fox News. People believe in trickle-down economics. It's not exactly a conspiracy theory, but democracy has to be built on some common understanding. We have to make sense of things together from common root systems. Yeah. And maybe if we're all wrong in the same way, it's better than if we disagree. But the disagreement are creating very complex fractions. One of the things I see with fake news is that somebody from the right comes to somebody from the left and says, what do you believe? And they say what they believe and say, I'm believing the opposite. You look at some of the beliefs, they could have been the opposite. Just because the left is picking one position, the right is picking the opposite position. It goes both ways. But it's really a fraction. In the moment you don't have beliefs in the standards of society, you don't respect the courts. Why would people pay taxes? Where's the boundaries? Our power as a society is about working together. 
the public good. And fake news is tearing us apart. Almost all fake news issues are partially driven by foreign interests. Mm. The day when Trump was elected, the next day I wrote something on my Facebook page. I wrote that I feel guilty. I should have gone to high school and pitched in and not just come two weeks before the election. And I said, it's not just me. I feel that the Democrats have abandoned the people we were supposed to help. And this is a wake up call for that. I write this. The next day, 70,000 followers leave my Facebook page. 70,000, it's a lot. A few days later, I learned that Facebook deleted 100 million fake accounts. <laughs> so a big portion of them were fake we're people. We're robots. We're bots. Yes. Yeah. So what chance do we have? Because basically AI is altering human consciousness already. That's what you just said. We're relational creatures and our ability to make sense of the world is so limited. It's agile, it's malleable, it is manipulatable so easily. We're going to make our world so small that we're like, okay, that's an apple, that's a cup of tea, and I know that to be true-ish. How are we going to remake society in healthy and whole systems? We've got wicked problems at our feet, and this is one of them. There was a photo of me on LinkedIn the other day with the premier of the state we live in, and I got a really angry text from an old friend. What the fuck, right? And I was like, what? I thought something had happened. And they were like, dancing with the devil. And I went, wow, I haven't heard from you in a long time. And the first time I hear from you is because you've just had outrage buttons pressed. There's way bigger fish to fry here, my friend. But that's the thing that got that person to reach out to me was outrage. As human beings, we have a lot of weak points. And our weak points came to us courtesy of our evolution. And they were not always weak points. They were useful at some point. Now, think about how emotions work. How emotions work, emotions get ignited by an external source. You can't sit now and say, I want to be happy or outraged and so on, but something can happen that would make you afraid or outraged and so on. Something comes from the outside, it ignites an emotion, and an emotion is a program that runs and we can't stop it. And you can think evolutionary why it's a right thing to do. Imagine a long time ago, you're at the edge of the jungle and you see a tiger You don't want to sit there and open an Excel spreadsheet and say, cost and benefit, what should I do? You want emotion, fear, run. It's a program, right? You press a button, (laughs) the whole thing goes. Arousal, have kids, you know? And that's what emotions are. Emotions are a way to make a very important decision cemented with an external stimuli that starts it. Now, we're not in the jungle anymore. And now we get uh, road rage and all kinds of other things that are not as great. Donuts, right? Sugar and fat. Nature wanted us to, if we find sugar and fat, we should stop and eat as much as we can. Now we have donuts. So what happened is that in modern society, we have a lot of things that are building on our weak points. You mentioned notifications before. B.F. Skinner, the amazing psychologist, One of the things he showed was what he called random reinforcement. If you take a rat and you give him a lever and you say every hundred presses on the lever, you'll get a piece of food. That's exciting. But if it's a random number between zero and 200, the rat presses much more 
And the rat presses much more even when they stop the food. Because when we don't know when the reinforcement is coming, we keep on pressing, hoping. Now, that's what notifications are all about. You get a notification and you say, oh, maybe this one is interesting. <laughs> Now, from time to time, it is interesting. Mostly it's not. But every time you have a notification, you like the rats. Now, if you knew for sure that it's only in the round hour you get important emails and nowhere else, it wouldn't be so addictive. But because you never know, the phone rings, the vibrate, something happens, maybe it's now. Gambling is the same. We're being completely incentivized towards total distraction, ultimate confusion, inability to make sense of the world. The wickedness of the problems is getting bigger and more complex. Even you are being told by friends, get off social media, don't listen yep. to the death threats and the hate map, like narrow your scope. And you're yep. like, I need to broaden my scope. I gotta, I gotta plug in. We don't even know what we gotta plug into. Plug into the sound of the ocean. Some of my friends are so unplugged from technology. That's their solution. They're living very much immersed in nature and they don't do cities and they don't do lots of people, like narrow, 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 which I completely understand and respect actually because I think that it's like there's such extremes and those so, who want to lead, who want to help, who want to be of service, how do we do that and check our thinking and have incentives and disincentives? We're having to opt in and opt out. So let me give you two answers for this. So one is not only are you correct about the destructive nature of cell phones, it's probably worse than you think. I don't know how much you've been following the literature. In one study, people solve math problems and they get paid for math problem. And they put the phone on the side and from time to time, they experiment to call the phone or text it. Now, the person is not allowed to look, but there's a distraction. So they solve math problems. They make money, make money, make money. The phone rings or vibrates. Money performance goes down. But the question is, how many minutes does it take for it to come back up? And the answer is 17 minutes. 17? 17. That's what it feels like too. feels like you're constantly hauling your concentration, your ability to think, hauling it up from the bottom of a deep well. The last two days, actually, I've been on the phone so much because I've got quite a few projects on the go. There's texting, there's calling, there's emails. I know everyone would be relating to this. And I was in an altered state for sure. The point is that task switching is much harder than we think. Even if you have your phone on your desk, some of your attention is lower. The moment you see it, because remember, this is a source of information about distraction. So even if you see it in your general vicinity, it makes a difference. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that we can design things better. So the things that keep me motivated, think about the physical world. We have really done amazing thing with the physical world. I'm just thinking about this chair. Totally. Uh, it's the right height and somebody made this back. We're talking to each other across the yeah, we're talking to each universe. Other. It's ingenuity. Somebody thought about all kinds of things about how to make this. The thing is, we need those things for our minds as well. Yeah. We developed the physical world, amazing cars, planes, think about surgery, unbelievable stuff. But through this process, we made life much longer and much more complex. And now the question is, what happens to our mental capacity? And this development, this amazing human development has made it very tough for us to deal with cognitive. Cognitive. In a cognitive way. 
We live too long. People are not designed to work from age 30 to 65 and then live 25 more years. Even the difference between genders, I'm 43, I still get my period. The other day, a doctor I was talking to, I was in pain and my period, like it's a long time to have your period. And he's like, yeah, you were meant to be dead by now. You wouldn't have survived one of your pregnancies or one of your births. Women didn't live this long and have periods for this long and very few did. Very few got to menopause. We're living in this altered state where we're having these bodily experiences that affect us hormonally and cognitively, collectively, more of us, longer. It's wild. That's right. It's wild. We didn't have to have cryptocurrency and modern medicine and Alzheimer's and taking care of people who are with disabilities. These are not things that we were designed for in an evolutionary sense. It's an unbelievably accelerated progress. We should be very grateful for it, but it doesn't come without the cost. And the cost is that, and this happens in lots of cases, where the technology is first developed, and then we notice the downside, and then we fix it. So the question, I think, is whether we would stop down and fix it. Something like the U.S. mail. When the U.S. mail started, one of the first ways it was used was for mail fraud. People would send letters and say, hey, give me your money, I'll send you whatever. And they wouldn't. And it was cross-state and they couldn't deal with it because it was not a crime. And they made laws, very tough laws for mail fraud. Now, the thing with lots of technology is that we've had a reluctance to regulate. Hasn't that been because we didn't understand the new economics of a technological Mm -hmm. world? We didn't understand the internet when it came in. We didn't understand what was going to happen and AI and tech and we didn't get it. And the economy itself is so flawed by design that we just can't, we couldn't catch up. The system is broken. I'm always fascinated by this as well. You were talking about tweaks, individual tweaks. I've Mm -hmm. done a tweak lately and I've lost a lot of kilos on it, which was just stop having lattes. It's the weirdest thing, but just stop Mm -hmm. having the milk or the oat milk and boom. It was like triggered a whole way of just eating cleaner, better. It was like a signifier. Now we're going to get different bins here in Australia. So we're going to have a glass bin, a paper bin, a green waste bin and a general waste bin. Like those individual incentives for us to do better, live better. But you can't tweak the whole system. First of all, there's a clock on our backs. We're late to the party and there's an urgency at play. And the urgency is around ecological systems that are dysfunctional now because they've been interrupted, broken, and they're breaking down and we need them for life on earth to sustain itself. So what do we do about when you want to redesign a system, you probably don't have time for tweaks, I'm imagining. How do you do redesign when you've also got nefarious interests? So you were saying like the US mail, I get that, that's awesome, but we had longer time frames to alter systems, right? because they could play out in a sort of more benign context. In the context we're in, you've got Putin obsessed with destroying American democracy and he's been very good at it and other nefarious agents who don't believe in the collective. How do we design with all of these things in mind, knowing how flawed we are and the systems we design are? So I think we do need to fasten the speed of regulation. It wasn't too long ago that the Arab Spring was with us. And at that point, we all felt 
social networks are going to bring democracy. <laughs> it turns out we were very wrong, but you know, we are discovering it and we need to change things. Now, the good news is I don't think the changes need to be that dramatic. There are some really small changes in social networks that could make a difference. I'll give you a very simple answer. In nature, communication always has a cost. So if you think about the standard example, it's the tail of the peacock. The male peacock has a tail. It's a very dysfunctional tail. It's long, it's cumbersome. When you take young peacocks that don't have a long tail and you stitch a longer tail to them, they get eaten faster because it really does make it harder to live. But the peacock is using the tail to advertise themselves as saying, look how strong and virile I am. If I'm managing to live with this tail, just imagine how wonderful I am. But it has a cost. And the cost in the peacock is something that threatens their lives. And that's true in all the animal kingdom. And the moment communication has a cost, you can't have what's called cheap talk. You can't just pretend. And you can't say whatever you want. You can only say things that are correct. We as humans in social media have created cheap talk. Wow. Now, so we need to get real about regulation, basically. Here in Australia, we have very passionate football fans, football communities, particularly where I live in Victoria. There's something called the AFL. It's Australian Rules Football. I've been to a game. It's an amazing game. And you will sit in the stands. I was at a really important game the other day, and both teams, the audience was mixed. So when one team scored a goal, was and then the rest were like, sad and dejected, but there was no violence, there's no abuse, there's no craziness in the stands. And I asked someone about it because I don't know anything about football and they said, oh, yeah, it used to be out of control and abuse at the umpires and swearing and racism and dangerous in some of the stands and the football league just got really serious about it and they said, if you swear, if you threaten, if you're violent, you will be escorted out of the stadium We want this to be a family-friendly spectator sport. That's it. There will be no bad behaviour. And amazingly, it worked because people can also say they can tell someone and call staff in to escort them out. So it's like a socially regulated arena of 100,000 people and it works. It does. Yeah, that's very nice. Social norms are very powerful, but something needs to start them. You know, the notion of economics about an equilibria, equilibria is like a level in which we all agree to, and everybody maintains that. Does anybody listening to this conversation have any power to promote new social norms on these commercial social media platforms that are incentivized to grab our attention and our money? Like we're disempowered by the very nature of the design. We need governments to regulate. And if they're so fucking slow. So I think the governments are slow, and I think social media networks have a long-term interest in self-regulation. At the end of the day, they prefer to self-regulate than the government regulate them. They just don't know what to do yet. There's some really simple things that end up being effective. So charging people a tenth of a penny, a hundredth of a penny, charging small amounts make things different. They make people slow down and think. It's surprising me, right? How much one penny would slow people down? If you say, once a day I post in the year, it will cost me $3. Not a lot of money, but it's enough to get people to to slow down and think. Even if you have a button that says, I'm sure this is true, people slow down. And with your friend who was pissed off with you, cooling down is really helpful. There's lots of little things that could be helpful, but on social media side, 
the role of social science in all of this is to identify where the soft spots in human nature that are being attacked in a not effective, good, long-term way for humanity and basically try to regulate against that. Think about if somebody wanted to start a business and there were no regulations, they only wanted to maximize profit. They sell heroin, yeah. right? You give one free sample, you have customers for life, not very long, but still... This heroin is an example of something that really gets into a very basic human weakness. You know that if you take rats and you give them an ability to push a lever and to inject themselves, they would inject themselves until they die. Nothing else is interesting. So we have to realize that we're killing ourselves. We have to realize that we're creating lots of damage to ourselves because we have these soft spots that we have a hard time and modern society has organized itself around these soft spots. Why have we done that? Why have we organized ourselves around our weaknesses? Because it's easier to change behavior this way. So imagine you're a supermarket and you can try to convince people to buy things from you in two ways. You can either give them a lecture about the importance of vegetables and fresh fruit and so on, or you can show them fresh cookies with the smell of... Fresh cookies. Which one is easier? The emotional path is often just an easier way to get us to act. That's what emotions were built for. So if we have a capitalistic system that wants to maximize their quarterly earnings, they don't care about us long term. The metaphor is that you walk down the street and every agent, every coffee shop, every ad, everything wants something from you. They want your time. They want your attention. They want your money. They want something from you. And you are the only one who is trying to protect that and think about your long-term value. And it's tough not to fail. But and that's why we need to think very differently about regulation. You're talking about long-term planning, long-term thinking, long-term resilient human behavior versus short-termism. But our very governments are designed around short-termism. So trying to get long-term outcomes, long-term regulatory mandates from government. I mean, Australia has only just yesterday passed a climate change bill. So the angst is the gap between what we know to be good for us and what we're capable of doing definitely individually and collectively. And so what do you say to everyone listening to this conversation? Like how of service and stay sane? Yeah. So there's lots of, lots of terrible things that are happening. I look at two positive things. One is the more we know, the more we understand what we need to do. We understand the magnitude of the problem. We understand the complexity of it. We understand how we need to intervene. So I think we need just to understand those things better, including attention, right? There's lots more things that we need to understand. And the other thing is we need to focus on the wins and not on the size of the challenge. I love that. There's a saying in Judaism that if you saved one person, it's as if you've saved the whole world. And I think that the logic of that statement is to say that if you look at the whole world, as you say that the task is just too big and too daunting, and you say, I can only make a drop in the bucket. And the statement is to say, a drop in the bucket is fine. Let's focus on the drop in the bucket and they'll add up together. And they're infectious. And you said the government just passed a regulation yesterday, you said? Yeah, the Senate, yeah. And a regulation is catching. The next regulation will take shorter. And regulation, by the way, is not just a regulation. Regulation is also, you mentioned social norms in terms of what happens in Australian rural football. So when the government passes laws, they also tell us what's the norm for behavior. The government that doesn't pass 
any environmental law is communicating with their things above and beyond the law and the government that passes it is also communicating things. We come back to, of course, what flashes in my mind is what happened here, which was the government passed a law that we needed to socially distance, wear masks, stay indoors for like 110 days. We had massive lockdowns here. While there was a social norm here in Melbourne where I live of looking after each other and it's a lovely place to live in the world today, very privileged. Something was broken in the social fabric by that. They pushed it too far. It went for too long. They broke something and there was a division. Everyone did it. Everyone adhered because there were disincentives. You'll be fined $5,000 if you're found in a group of 10 people. Serious disincentives. But interestingly, it worked for the effect that it had, but it broke people. And it had more long-term negative implications than people yet realise. Yes. Take care of yourself. Sending love from Australia. Bye for now. Bye. All right. I'm just going to say at the end of that, Dunn's just gone. That was awesome getting to talk to him for as long as I did. There's so much more to examine in human behavior, behavioral psychology, why we do what we do, how we make decisions. We're so flawed and we're all kind of doing our best. And of course, we want to crash at the end of the day and just consume content to ease our minds and to go into a state of rest. I think a lot of us are seeking rest, but I love talking to people like Dan who are trying to understand and map a way through. And one of the things I was thinking at the end that I didn't get a chance to talk to him about is I know Dan is here for the betterment of humanity. The Center for Advanced Hindsight, which is hilarious, that's his place that he works at Duke University, they're really trying to make people happier, healthier, wealthier for the good of humanity. And there are the same people like Dan who are working in Facebook to help hack our attention and hack our psychology for profit. That's not who Dan Ariely is. He's very much trying to help us live better, design better systems. So that's why speaking to him is really amazing because he's in the thick of it. I'm always interested to know how we can test our thinking and test our behavior because I'm an emotional person. I'm really sensitive. And when I feel reactive, I want to do something about it. And as I'm getting older, just learning to put that pause and put that breath and maybe even a good night's sleep in between my emotional response and a reaction at doing something about it. It's actually good generally not to do anything, maybe write in a journal or sing a song or go for a run, but not to action an email or text or phone call or say those mean things. Whatever it is, the comments section is slightly overrated if you're feeling like inflamed. More than that, I would say this is a call out to all the good humans listening to this who are really good at thinking through. Their thinking process is solid. If you're an engineer or a designer, just think about what you're designing for. What are the outcomes that you're designing for? That's what Dunn talks about a lot and I think about a lot. There's a lot of people out there who are working for companies, organisations where the outcome is not great for the collective or the planet. Think about why you are doing that and if you can be doing systems thinking and design thinking for the betterment of life on earth because we want to be good ancestors and we want to live into the promise that we love our kids and other people's kids. Love to everybody out there. Thanks for listening.
You can learn more about Dan's work over at danarielli.com. Some of his books include Predictably Irrational, Dollars and Cents, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. You can also read our conversation with him in issue 55 of Dumbo Feather magazine, titled Creating the Next Economy. Thanks for your company, and do join us again for our next episode of the Good Society series, which will drop in two weeks' time. Bye for now. EcoStore makes it easy to choose safer, effective home and body care products for you, your family, and our world.